Welcome back to another episode of The Exceptional Educator from Baytree Blog. I'm Anne-Marie Moore, your host and author at Baytree Learning. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Melanie Sheely. She's a nationally recognized expert on phonological awareness, and we'll be talking about the importance of great phonological awareness instruction and how to bring your teaching to the next level. I get a lot of questions about what to do if your child or student is struggling with reading and spelling. Phonological awareness instruction is often a great place to start to get these kids back on track. There are a lot of goodies in this episode. We're going to talk about what happens when phonemic awareness isn't sticking. As a teacher, what can you do? Providing effective scaffolds for phonemic awareness instruction. And best of all, how teachers and learning specialists can narrow the gap between research and practice. Dr. Sheely's publications on phonological awareness are incredible. I think if they were required reading for every kindergarten and first grade teacher in this country, we'd have so many fewer students struggling to learn how to read. For the complete show notes with links to resources and websites Dr. Sheely and I discuss, go to baytreeblog.com forward slash podcast and search Melanie. So let's go chat with Melanie. Dr. Melanie Sheely is an associate professor in the Department of Hearing and Speech Sciences at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Prior to her PhD studies, Sheely provided speech language services in public schools and early intervention. Her training and research interests focus on school-based issues, and she conducts research in complex syntax and early literacy acquisition. In 2014, she and Naomi Murphy co-authored the Intensive Phonological Awareness Program. She leads professional development at the local, state, and national levels, and we're absolutely delighted to have her on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great. So let's just jump right on in. So, you know, when we're teaching students, um, we have so many different constraints on our time and so many different goals. Why is phonological awareness and phonemic awareness important? Why bother? So I think that really once kids start reading and that sort of the kids at large start reading, the primary avenue for um, language development, further language development is often reading or primarily reading. Now today kids have a lot of access to things like the History Channel and um, information like that on science shows and stuff so they can also build vocabulary that way. But we're building language through reading and so therefore if kids have weak language skills and they don't learn to read, all that um, input is lost to them. And we really know from research that if kids are um, not reading on grade level at third grade, the overwhelming majority of them, 75% of them, are going to be out of the classroom for a good bit of their instructional day for the rest of their time at school. So they will not catch up and they will not move back to the classroom. So because um, phonological awareness and specifically phonemic awareness is a need upon which um, or a basis upon which we build decoding skills kids need to have phonological awareness in order to build those basic decoding skills so it's not uncommon to see children in third and fourth grade and beyond who are struggling with word recognition and word decoding and word spelling that what's underlying that is a really weak foundation of phonological awareness so building those phonological awareness skills early on is going to set them up for success as they move through those early elementary grades and then onward from there is what you're saying. Exactly. So it sort of creates exactly. a sort of cascade of sort of positive outcomes. Right. 
what are then are sort of the benefits for me as an educator if I'm a um, if I'm working with kindergartners or first graders what's in it for me for teaching phonemic awareness okay so I think about um, when we're teaching phonemic awareness we're teaching kids to analyze the sound structure of language and um, true phonemic awareness instruction, true or pure phonological awareness instruction, pure phonemic awareness instruction, to me, does not reference letters and sounds. So we're just teaching kids to analyze the sound structure of language. So when we think about um, two, three, four-year-olds who rhyme words, you know, like my name is Kate, hey, gate, gate and Kate rhyme, that sounds like, you know, they sound the same. Those kids may know nothing about letters. So phonemic awareness does not rely on letters, but learning how letters works relies on phonemic awareness. So I think about um, if I only taught phonemic awareness and I didn't teach any letter sounds in preschool, say, and so I got a group of kindergarten kids that knew nothing about letters, but they could analyze the sounds and words. So they could do rhyming words. They could tell me that Kate begins with a K sound. They could tell me Kate ends with a t sound they could tell me that there's three sounds in cake eight then the let the um they would have all that foundational knowledge and i could say wow all those sounds now have letters now let's figure out how those letters map with the sounds what often happens for kids who struggle to learn to read is that they don't get that phonemic awareness basis and we start with letters and sounds and they don't really understand what we're using those letters and sounds for. So um, I think about myself, I had a really hard time learning to read in first grade and was in a very phonics-based uh, first grade classroom back in the 60s. And the teacher would say things to me about the sounds and I would think, I have no idea what you're talking about. Now I had memorized how to spell certain words. So I remember one day, um, we were looking at a worksheet and the, the initial sounds were missing. And so she said, like, look at the picture and think about how you say the word and put the letter there that, you know, goes with the first sound. And I looked at the first picture and it was a fan and A-N was written on the worksheet. And I thought to myself, well, now that's stupid. I don't even know what she's talking about with sounds, but you don't need to know anything about sounds. Fan is spelled F-A-N. The fact of the matter is I had no idea how to analyze those words into sounds and take advantage of that information. Exactly. So it's sort of like those students who know that three times four equals 12, but they have no idea what that actually means. Exactly. 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 So they so it's just yeah. the memorization without any sort of insight. And so that insight into the sound structure is what's so important for those right. young readers. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And I always think of a little girl that I worked, she had, uh, it was the end of first grade when I was testing her and I was trying to figure out what she knew phonological awareness wise because my students were going to start intervention the next day. So I started up with, you know, trying to divide words into sounds. She couldn't do that. Um, I tried to get her to segment initial sounds off of words. What's the first sound in cat? What's the first sound in shoe? She couldn't do that. So then I dropped down to rhyme, which is really a pretty basic skill. And here this child was at the end of first grade. So I thought certainly she will be able to do some rhyme. And so I said, well, tell me a word that rhymes with cat. And she said bat. And I thought, oh, great. We know something. This is a place to start. And so I said, yeah, you're right. Cat and bat rhyme. And then I said another word. So let's say I said dog. And so tell me a word that rhymes with dog. And she looked at me and she raised her finger and shook it at me. And she said, well, my mama hasn't told me that one yet. 
So clearly she didn't have any phonemic awareness, phonological awareness. She had simply memorized it. And we really had to start at the bare bones basic with her. So Melanie, you've published this fantastic accessible program for teaching phonological awareness, which we're going to talk about later on in the interview. Um, and you've published, published a lot of research on this topic. You've worked with a lot of students. Um, and we know that learning is complex. Um, we know that language is complex. And we know that there's not there's a lot that we don't know yet about learning and language, um, but we do know that there's this proven causal relationship between phonological awareness instruction and phonemic awareness instruction and these positive literary out- literacy outcomes. And that's why, of course, it was so important for this first grader you were talking about to go back and make sure she had all those foundational skills in place. But, you know, what's interesting to me is I talk to a lot of elementary school teachers um, and there's a lot of confusion um, and they want to be doing right by their students, but they're not always entirely sure what phonological awareness is or what phonemic mm-hmm. awareness is or what good instruction looks like. You know, so as a researcher, my question for you is how do we spread the word about this? How do we get people thinking about the importance of, of phonemic awareness instruction? So I'm going to define phonemic awareness, phonological awareness and phonics. Because the, the words um, get used interchangeably, and they're not. And unfortunately, because marketing is marketing, um, you know, if all of a sudden red is the greatest color, I'm going to slap red on everything, and everybody's going to buy it. So it's sort of, you know, if I slap phonemic awareness and phonics on the front of something, everybody buys it, doesn't matter what's inside of it, and I get home, and then I find out what's inside of it is not what I thought it was. So. I think of um, the term phonological awareness being an umbrella term. So phonological awareness refers to any activity I ask a child to engage in that requires some analysis of sound, either a very complex analysis or a very simple analysis. And so a very complex analysis of the sounds and words would be to say, so say the word sun now take this off of sun and put a f where s is and what word do you have? So you've got to take things apart. You've got to put things back together. That's a really complex task. A really simple task is a rhyme task. And for me, the simplest rhyme task is just asking kids, do, does X and Y rhyme? So do fun and sun rhyme? Do fun and shoe rhyme? And obviously you can be right by guessing Um, or you can be right by being right, by actually knowing something. But in order to rhyme, you don't have to take words apart. It's really at a very global level that you're paying attention to the sounds. So all of those complex and simple tasks um, fall under this umbrella phonological awareness. The tasks become classified as a phonemic awareness task. So phonemic awareness is going to be a subset of phonological awareness. So when I do a workshop, I draw two circles. The big circle is phonological awareness. Then there's a smaller circle inside of it that's phonemic awareness. So every phonemic awareness task is a phonological awareness task, but every phonological awareness task is not a phonemic awareness task. Great. So it's like our squares and rectangles. Yes. So phonemic awareness then... Um, a, a, a uh, task goes into that phonemic awareness basket when I ask you to isolate the individual sounds and words. So if I say to you, do fun and farm begin with the same sound, you actually can accomplish that by doing a very global analysis. Just say fun and farm. You don't have to segment it off. 
But when I say to you, tell me the first sound in fun, you have to take that phoneme off the rest of the word. You have to say fun. And so the fun, the focus on the individual sound is a phonemic awareness task. So our typical phonemic awareness tasks are, tell me the first sound in the word, tell me the last sound in the word, tell me all the sounds in the word, and then those tasks of deleting and moving around sounds. <clears throat> so again, phonemic awareness, we're working, we're isolating individual sounds. And I, <coughs> excuse me, um, I've often heard, um, heard and read that phonemic awareness is the ab ability to hear sounds and words. And I don't like that explanation because it's not a hearing issue. It's an analysis issue. So if I think of myself in kindergarten, I could hear, or sorry, first grade, I could hear everything the teacher said. I could hear her say fun. I could hear her say fan. I knew what those words were. What I couldn't do was analyze the sounds in the words. And so we have a lot of kids in school that um, have difficulty talking. They're kids with language impairments and they have difficulty analyzing those sounds. We have other kids that are good in talking, but they're not good at analyzing sounds. So analyzing sounds seems to be something different. And I always sort of <clears throat> liken it to um, college basketball. I love watching college basketball. Can't analyze college basketball at all. And as a matter of fact, this week I was at a game with my son and he said, why is that a foul? And I said, I have no idea. I really don't understand why that's a foul. So I can enjoy basketball. I can play basketball a little bit, but I am not Mike Krzyzewski and I'm not going to be able to take a team to the final four. I can't analyze basketball. But Mr. Krzyzewski is awesome at analyzing basketball. He has really good meta basketball skills he's got those those meta yes. basketball skills i yes. love that i think this is the first time i've ever heard phonological awareness compared to college basketball and i'm, I'm really yeah. enjoying <laughs> this quite a lot um okay so it sounds like a great place for for teachers and instructors to start is just knowing what phonological awareness is what phonemic awareness is and how are these insights as you were saying how are these insights different from phonics okay so we have phonics and when we think about phonics the usual thing that people think of is worksheets that we pull out and we get kids to think about how letters go with sounds. And that's exactly what it is. We use phonics um, as a method to decode words and as a method to teach kids to decode words. So essentially we can think of English has 40 to 45 speech sounds, depending on your dialect. And we have this alphabet with 26 letters. Right there we ran into the problem because we have too many sounds for the letters. And so we actually in English have about 240 graphemes. So phonics really is about teaching students to link speech sounds with graphemes. And sometimes graphemes are single letters and sometimes they're multiple letters. Great. So like sh is sh. So when, when so when we're talking about phonics, we're always talking about letters. There's always a letter in front of me when I'm doing phonics. In a pure phonological awareness task, there isn't a letter. So when I think about if I sit down with a child and I say, okay, we're going to um, look at this word and we have a C and an A and a T in front of us and then we have another word that's an S and a U and an N. What I'm going to do is teach that child to pair a sound 
with that letter. And by doing so, I'm teaching that child, I'm hoping that that child fo follows along with me and can match those sounds, blend them together, make a word and match it to a word in their head. But being able to do that relies on the child understanding that you actually can take words and break them down into sounds. So if I think back to myself again in first grade, I remember sitting there with my lovely first grade teacher, so first year out of college, she's very, very patient because she actually taught me how to read. And those were the days of 45 kids in first grade classrooms. And um, so the word we, I was looking at on this, this particular day that I remember this was C-A-T. And she said, okay, put the sounds with the letters. So I had memorized that. And I said, K-A-T. And she said, put those sounds together faster. And I said, Kaata. And she said, no, faster, Kaata. So I could sit there all day and say, Kaata, Kaata. And she was like, no, blend them together. And I was like, well, I did. It's like a puzzle, Kaat, Kaata. And I remember her saying, no, the word is cat. And I thought, well, why didn't you just tell me that? So for me, I couldn't link Kaata with cat. But think about if I played with the word cat, and you've gotten me to break down cat into k-at. Then when I have k-at and I'm trying to put it together, it's much easier for me to have that insight and say, oh, cat. Because actually when we blend together, we have to splice out, think of splicing, we have to splice out the essential piece to get from k-at to cat. Right. Now, sun is a little easier because we just blend it together. So really, when we're teaching phonological awareness, we're teaching that foundation of that words are broken down into sounds. We can mat, we can take those, those words apart. We can put those words together. When we're doing phonics, we're saying, okay, now here's letter symbols that we can attach to those sounds. And now we can actually create those words on a page from print. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. So then I think this sort of begets the question of when do you start teaching these skills? Um, so if we're talking about a group of typical learners, um, when's a great time to be providing instruction? So um, I kind of group kids into three groups. You know, there's three kinds of kids in the world. And one of those kinds of kids are kids that are really in tune, just they're naturally in tune to sounds in language. And those are the kids on their own that um, at home, they, um, you know, mom never really talks about rhyming, dad doesn't talk about rhyming, or maybe talks about it a little bit. And they just click on, gosh, that sound, that's a sound just like at the beginning of my name, or that that sounds Kate, Gate, that sounds like my name. And those kids naturally seem to be attracted to the sounds in words. They don't have my brain for sure. Those are the kids that love rhyming books. They love Dr. Seuss. And so those children really um, elicit a lot of uh, teaching from their environment because they naturally make comments about sounds. I think a lot of those kids are the ones that actually figure out on their own how to learn to read. So that's a very small slice of life, very small slice of life. Then we have this other group of children who really represent the bulk of kids in school. 
and they need some phonological awareness instruction. With some phonological awareness instruction, they take off. So while we sometimes say that teaching phonological awareness is a new thing in school, it really isn't a new thing. We can go back to the 20s, to the 30s, to a long time ago, teachers have always taught kids rhyme. So we've always taught phonological awareness. Everybody, no matter how old they are, can remember circling worksheets of circle all the pictures that begin with the f sound or the b sound. And so we've always done those phonological awareness tasks. So there's a group of kids that that amount of phonological awareness instruction seems to be enough for them. The and, would, and would you say that's the group of kids that, that sort of that 12 to 18 hours is, is, a, is about the right amount? No. Well, no, because we're going to talk about those kids okay. in terms of individual instruction. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Or small group instruction. So those are the kids, if we think about when I was in kindergarten, or sorry, when I came to first grade in the 60s, we didn't learn letters and sounds in kindergarten. We came to first grade the first day and it was, you know, hit the ground, learn this stuff. So we learned our letters and sounds. We did the rhyming pages. And we circled all the letter, or sorry, we circled all the pictures that begin with the b. We circled all the pictures that begin with f. All the pictures that begin with s. And for ninety percent of the children in the classroom, that was enough. Like the the light bulb turned on. Aha! You can take words and you can divide them into sounds, and they could translate that. What's the first sound in in cat? to then working on what's the last sound in cat, what's the middle sound in cat. And so for those children, um, the the natural, I'm gonna say, not say it's 90% because it really isn't 90%. I'm gonna say it's 75%. You know, we're up to like 75% of the kids between the kids that, um, the bottom, those kids that get it on their own and then this other group of kids. So these kids, um, are those those children that you give a little bit of instruction to and they run with it. So think about when you're coaching a team. You have kids that you do a drill and there's some of the kids on the team that get the drill and now all of a sudden they can kick the soccer ball down the field and then there's other kids that are standing there like, um, what's the soccer ball? Where am I going? So the traditional, I think of it as the traditional amount of phonemic awareness that we gave kids. So we gave them rhyming words, we gave them analyzing initial sounds, and then we moved to decoding. And, and they were able to take that little bit of phonological awareness, that moderate about amount of phonological awareness instruction, and really run with it. And we could keep feeding them phonological awareness as we were teaching them decoding, and they got it. Um, so for anybody that's listening that struggled to learn to read, that's the point at which you were like, how do they know what's going on and I don't? Because they got it. Then we have this other group of kids, and I would say across the population of children, it's somewhere between 20 and 30% of kids. And it, so in some schools, it's going to be 5% of children, and in other schools, it's going to be 50% of children. It just depends on what the makeup of the school looks like and what instructional opportunities we provide children. And for those children, um, learning to analyze initial sounds of words does not generalize to final sounds. So that was me. I could circle all the pictures that began with ba, but that did not mean I could turn around and circle the pictures that, be, that ended with ba. It didn't mean I could turn around and 
segment a word into its three or four sounds. And those are the children that 20 to 30% of children are really the children that are highly reliant on what kind of instruction we provide in the classroom. And they're highly reliant on timely small group instruction if they don't get it from what's going on in the classroom. So the key for me in the classroom is that nobody is going to be going to be adversely influenced by doing phonological awareness instruction in the classroom. So I have a group of kids always in a kindergarten classroom who get it. They get it the first day of school. Nothing is going to happen to them by continuing to do some phonological awareness instruction. So we don't have to worry that some kids get it. What we have to worry about is at the end of the day, we want all the children in the classroom to have these skills um, so that they then can take advantage of our decoding instruction. And so really for me, phonemic awareness for the kindergarten teacher sets the, sets the um, table, if you will, for everybody to be then able to take advantage of the phonics or the decoding instruction that I could have. And so when I think about kindergarten teachers, I think about a project I did in West Virginia when we were um, initially test running the um, intensive phonological awareness program and we've, we um, partnered with the folks at the State Department of Education in West Virginia. And um, we had we uh, had classroom teachers not doing this small group instruction yet, but doing a classroom-based program based on the phonemic awareness in young children curriculum that Marilyn Adams and her colleagues have published. And so the teachers were doing developmentally appropriate phonological awareness instruction. And we can talk about what exactly that means in a minute. And when we got to the end of the year, um, I talked to these kindergarten teachers, and these were mostly really seasoned kindergarten teachers. And um, what they said was, wow, my strongest kids in the room, wow, they really benefited from it because their, their skills are really, really strong. And my weakest kids in the room, I had no idea that I actually could get those kids to learn these skills that I've always taught. And so I think we sometimes at the beginning of the year give up on kids. Um, they're not getting the phonics instruction that we're doing, the decoding instruction that we're doing. They're not getting it because they don't have that foundation of phonemic awareness. And so that foundation enables them to take advantage of our instruction. Yeah, I love that analogy of sort of setting the table for future success. Yeah. That's great. So talking about developmentally appropriate instruction, what does that look like? So... Um, let's talk about developmentally inappropriate okay. awareness instruction. So many curricula and many kindergarten teachers use a letter of the week framework when they're teaching. So today's the B week, today's the C week, today's the F week, whatever it is. And we do a lot of activities centered around B and F. And it's a really fun way to organize the curriculum. And we can have our box for each week that we do. And, um, the problem is, is that it doesn't match really well with the way that we learn. So we don't learn a letter um, by really, really concentrating on that week and then forgetting about it. We really learn about letters when we think about a lot of letters together. And what happens in terms of phonological awareness and, and the letter of the week is that the curricula then are pretty much laid out. So I'm thinking of some... Um, 
basal reading kinds of series that I've looked at. And so in the B week, we rhyme words with B in with B in them. We segment words with B. We look for words that begin with B and we look for words that end with B. But that is assuming that phonological awareness is a letter by letter skill or a sound by sound skill. And it's not, it's a foundation that underlies everything. So in developmentally appropriate phonemic awareness, we think about, or developmentally appropriate phonological awareness, we think about the sequence of development and we move from simple to complex. So what's the most simple phonological awareness task? Well, it's rhyme. And what's the most complex phonological awareness task we're, work on, we're gonna work on with a kid? Well, it's segmenting words into sounds and then moving over to attaching letter symbols to those sounds. So um, in contrast to this week is the, um, we, we're gonna work on the letter F, so we're gonna rhyme F words and we're gonna segment F words and we're gonna um, look at F words that begin with F, we're gonna look at words that end with F. In a developmentally appropriate model, we would say, okay, we're gonna start with rhyme and we know that it's easier for kids to segment continuant sounds than stop sounds because I can make continuant sounds um, logical. And, and what is a sailing. continuant sound? So a continuant sound is any sound you can hold out. So sun, I can say sun, and I can make each of those sounds as long as I want to. Contrast that with cat. <laughs> I can't hold it out. Right. I can hold out the ack at but I can only make and in that brief moment of time. So it's easier for kids to analyze continuance. They're more accessible for analysis. I, as the teacher, can make them more salient. So you see how it's not a B and an F or the sounds that go with B and F, but it's the underlying um, nature of that sound. So in um, Adam's curriculum, as an example of developmentally appropriate for a kindergarten curriculum, first we work on rhyming, then we move to thinking about initial sounds. And first, we're just comparing words with initial sounds. So do sun and gate have the beginning, the same beginning sound? Then we're segmenting that beginning sound off. What does sun begin with? What does gate begin with? Then we move to final sounds. So what does sun end with? What does gate end with? And then only after we've done that do we move to taking a whole word and breaking it down into its component sounds. And then after that, moving into the phonics realm, now that we can segment those things, now we move into um, how do we attach a letter and a sound to it. So if we think about kids at different stages of that development and the kindergarten teacher is having them write in their journal and the child's drawn a picture, so they drew a sun and a gate, right? If they're only at the level of being able to analyze initial sounds, they probably will just write an S or a G for each of those pictures. If they've gotten initial sounds and final sounds, that's where their brain is. They'll spell sun, S-N, and they'll spell gate, G-T. Now, once they can segment, once developmentally they move up to the next step and they're like, ah, sun has three sounds, gate has three sounds, they're going to spell sun, S-U-N, they're going to spell gate, G-A-T, and only when we teach them the phonics pattern that when you have an A sound, there's often this silent E at the end, will we get G-A-T-E. 
Oh, I love this. So what you're saying though, is that spelling, our student spelling is really sort of gives us insight into what they know in terms of oh, phonological yeah. awareness. Very um, definitely. And you know, I work, I don't work as much with kindergarten students, but I see more, you know, maybe fourth or fifth graders. And I love looking at their spelling because it tells me so much about what they have mastered and where the holes are still. So I'm working with, um, uh, a third grade girl right now. And I love looking at her, her spelling of blends, um, when we first started, because what I noticed is that every time there was, um, a final blend that had sort of a nasal sound in it, mm -hmm. um, that nasal sound often got left out. So would you say then for a student like that, that this is an insight that the phonological awareness isn't entirely in place yet to really adequately support the spelling and the reading work that might be expected of a child of that age. Oh yeah, and so that's another really good example of simple to complex. So within each of our skills, we also have simple to complex in terms of stimuli. So if we think about segmenting words into sounds, we've often, um, we can often read, okay, two sound words are gonna be easier than three sound words, and three sound words are gonna be easier than four sound words. Okay, well, um, so think about the word seek, and the word sky, those each have three sounds. Or let's make it seek and ski, so we have the same sounds. So we have seek and ski. So if you write those words down, they each have three sounds, right? So that should be easy, because they should be equally difficult. But seek is a consonant vowel consonant, and ski is two consonants plus a vowel. So actually seek is way, way easier than ski because kids are successful at CVCs, pulling that consonant apart from the vowel before they're successful with those two vowels, sorry, the two consonants together. And why okay? is that? Why is that sort of that CVC structure so much um, easier to work with? You know, that's a good question and I've never thought about it. Um, why? So ski, ski, so while I'm doing ski, ski is in two different places in the mouth. So they have those articulation cues. So it, should, it shouldn't be that hard. But for some reason, consonants next to each other are harder. And then let me jump to your, what was the word that you said with a nasal? Like jump. Yeah, jump. That's perfect. Okay. So we have a bunch of blends that the two consonants are actually made in the same place of the mouth. So those are really hard consonants or really hard blends. So stop and jump. Think about those. We call them home organic, H-O-M-O -O, organic. So home organics, just fancy way of saying that you make those two sounds in the same place of your, in your mouth. <clears throat> so st, st, my tongue's in the same place. There's not a big, there's no huge difference. Mm -hmm, puh, They're, my, my um, lips are in the same place for both of those sounds contrast that with um, flow or sl slow, slow not so much, flow and um, blow. So those, um, those uh, ski and blow, my mouth is doing two different things. So even, um, so when we talk about developmentally and simple to complex, if we're going to teach today children how to segment words with consonant blends in them, we're going to have some consonant blends that are easier than other consonant blends. And those um, nasals that you pointed out are actually the hardest blends to segment the nasals at the end. And I'm going to just give you a couple little examples in a minute on those. And really, 
it is not uncommon for kids to still struggle with that into second grade. Typical kids struggle that into second grade. And the reason that we think is one, the home organicity. So M and P are made in the same place. I don't have a movement cue to help me. But then also when you say jump, the nasal quality from the M goes on the uh. So the uh in buck actually sounds different than the uh in jump because in jump it's nasalized and in buck it's not. So you've got some air going out your nose when you're saying uh in jump. So children are sorting all that out when they're learning to analyze sounds. They're sorting out where, you know, what goes with what. And so often children will spell jump J-U-P because that you got that nasal quality on the vowel and that's where they think it is. They don't realize, they don't analyze another um, consonant in there. So typically jump would be spelled J-U-P, tent would be spelled T-E-T. Now, my, um, one of my students' son was with us as a at a coffee shop a couple years ago when he was in kindergarten and we were having a meeting and he was doing his worksheet and it was the short E page in his worksheet that he was working on. And so really all he had to do was write the letter in each of these words. So for like hen, it had H and then an underline and an N and it had T and an underline and an NT and then it had bed, B and an underline and a D. So he did bed, he wrote the E and you could see him sounding it out. And then he looked, he looked at tent and he looked up and he said tent. And he said, it was this great look of surprise. And he says, you don't even really need the E in there because it's silent. And so for him seeing that N, he accounted for the A and the N that nasal at and n all together. And so I was like, oh, this is so, so cool to see what's going on in little brains. And so every time we see those kinds of things, it helps us figure out the errors that other kids are doing. So I agree with you that seeing kids spelling and listening to kids errors when they decode is really giving us a picture into their brain and yes. what they're doing. Think of it as our own little behavioral MRI yeah, right there. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. And then another um, challenge that I hear from a lot of teachers is they'll say, okay, Anne-Marie, so I, I, I think I've taught phonological awareness and I've taught my students their phonics and, and they know their letter sound correspondences. And then when it's time for her to blend, she just gets so confused and she doesn't know what she's doing. Um, so what would you recommend to a teacher who's, who's encountering this problem where a child is trying to blend the sounds together, um, but just seems to sort of get things just sort of fall apart. Um, and even maybe in a, a more simple structured word, like a, a CVC word with a consonant and then a vowel and a consonant. So one of the things that I have discovered recently is that we have separated phonological awareness instruction and phonics instruction. And so we kind of like um, when we do our phonological awareness instruction, we do that, we check off that box, and then we move on to the phonics. And we forget that it's really a circle. We've got to circle back. So I've worked with a lot of my, um, my teacher colleagues saying, are you linking that phonological awareness to those letters in the press of everyday activities? So if I have a child who says, like, let's do cat, let's go back to cat, when I was sitting there saying cat, and the teacher, you know, say it faster, say it faster, that wasn't helping me. 
So it was helpful when the teacher said cat. Now, instead of going on, she could have said, now let's think about that word again. I just said cat. What if we break that down into sounds? What would it be? And so going back and breaking that down. Another example of um, helping children is, um, so I think about it as making them responsible for thinking about how letters and sounds go together. So I had a child one time, I was reading with him, he was in second grade, and we were reading a passage about um, a whale, and he um, was supposed to read a layer of blubber, and he liked to look at the beginning of a word and just come up with something. So he read a lady of blubber. So we read the whole sentence and we figured out that a lady of blubber didn't really make sense in that sentence. So there could be ladies with, you know, ladies of blubber. So I stopped and I said, okay, honey, if, la if the word was lady, what letters would you expect to be there? Based on the sounds, what letters would you expect to be there? And of course he said, an L and a D. So then I said, well, let's go back to the page and look. Is there an L? Yes. Is there a D? No. Well, it can't be lady then. And so then I pulled out another piece of paper and I wrote, we figured out how to write lady. You know, well, lady would have an L and a D. What else might it have? So we end up with L-A-D-Y there. And then underneath L-A-D-Y, I wrote layer, L-A-Y-E-R. And then we really did some back and forth analysis. What looks the same about these words? What looks different? What's same about how we say them? What's different about how we say them? So I think of it as, you know, just arrows that go in a perpetual circle, circular motion, right? Phonological awareness, letters, phonological awareness, letters, phonological awareness, letters. So I'm constantly going back and forth. And when kids make sound, make mistakes, in sounding out words, um, I make them go back and say and link those letters and those sounds. So if you read um, fun for fuss, then doing that analysis with the words and the sounds. Great. And do you have a name for this analysis? Because I, I think this is a really wonderful strategy. And it goes back to that idea of that our mistakes are really insights and really opportunities to help fill in any gaps or of awareness. You know, I don't have a name, but now I'm going to have to think. I think you're going to need one because yeah. I think this is great. And I think it's a, a really wonderful strategy because um, it's not just about getting to the meaning of the sentence and, and of the word, but just really thinking of those insights. I love that. Yeah. It's a great strategy. So and then um, just as a tangential comment, and then another time we can have a podcast on this. So we <laughs> have really tried to use this idea with kids when they're writing and reading and we use, um, and it's hard to do it like on the page. You have to move it off of the page. So you have yeah. to write it in a notebook. And we've also created these grapheme chips. And it's really cool to see when we start to make kids think in that circular way, then they're using the information that they have in their head. And it really empowers them to try. Yeah. And they get the insights too. And instead right. of just looking at the teacher, oh, what is this word? I don't know what it is. It gives them those strategies yeah. um, and some excitement about penetrating um, yes. the word. Oh, I love that. I love it. So come up with a name for us and, and we'll title yeah. it and you know copyright yeah. it for you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to sort of switch gears a little bit. And we've been talking about the interactions between teachers and instructors and students. And I want to talk to you a little bit about collaboration. Because I know in your, your field testing of the program in West Virginia, 
um, that you've told me that you've seen some really wonderful um, collaborative efforts between different members of, of school teams. And I was hoping you could share some of the insights that you have about what's been fruitful collaboration for these professionals around phonological awareness. Okay, so when we started out with the project in West Virginia, um, really they came to me and said, we need a small group intervention. This was before RTI. Um, we want to, you know, we want to take your small group intervention and we want to use that with the kids um, to beef them up in kindergarten. And I said, okay, we really need to um, integrate classroom instruction with subsequent small group instruction. And if we don't do good classroom instruction, there's really, we're going to get too many kids in the small group instruction. So that's the first problem. And then, of course, it's too expensive. So I guess on a, on, on a basic level, we collaborated between two programs, mm -hmm. right? We created a collaboration between classroom instruction and the small group instruction. And so... So you're um, using that response to intervention model where you've got the three tiers, and that first right. tier is just strong general curriculum for all students. Right. And so we use that phonemic awareness in young children curriculum. We, um, the kindergarten teachers were going to implement it in the classroom and they felt really comfortable about um, rhyme, but not so much the other skills because maybe rhyme and initial sounds they felt comfortable with, but not the other things so much because they really didn't have that training and that understanding of how um, the speech system works in English or in any language for that matter but we were working in English. So um, so at the first level, our, when we were doing the training, we um, had a, a team from each school and we had a um, kindergarten teacher and um, a first grade teacher because they were going to do some stuff. I'm not going to talk about their piece in it, but a kindergarten and a first grade teacher. And then we typically had a speech pathologist and then a reading specialist. So we had a four-person four team. And so the first... Thing we were going to do was that good classroom instruction and so we did training collaboratively we talked about phonological awareness with the teachers the classroom teachers the specialists and the speech pathologists in the room so we all had a shared vocabulary we all talked about this in the same way when somebody said phonological awareness everybody knew what phonological awareness was and the basis for the training that we did really was um, a lot of what's in Louisa Motz's um, speech to print book that's published by Brooks. And um, so we had that shared vocabulary. So then the classroom teacher is doing that instruction um, in her classroom, 20 minutes a day based on that curriculum. And of course, some kids are gonna get it and some kids aren't. And so the collaboration often was either the reading specialist or the speech pathologist or maybe both of them coming into the classroom even just once a week to do that 20-minute lesson with the classroom teacher. And what that allowed for is some days they could split the kids into two groups and do smaller groups. Now, I don't necessarily like splitting kids by ability, the low and the high kids, because I think the high kids really teach the low kids something. But we all know it's easier to manage a small group than a large group. Other times, the speech pathologist could come in or the reading specialist could come in and just observe what's going on and really see who's falling apart and why they're falling apart and when they're falling apart in that group instruction. Because we all know when we have 20 children sitting in front of us and we're trying to teach those 20 kids, it's really hard to pay attention to one of them. So then um, that observer could give feedback to the other person. Let's try this. Let's do this. And then 
some days that um, specialist came in, speech pathologist or the reading specialist or special ed teacher came in and they taught that lesson so that the teacher could be in the position of observing her kids. And how many teachers ever actually get to observe hmm. how their kids are doing? You've got to keep things going. So the only way you get to observe your kids is if you videotaped them and then watched them that lesson at the end of the day. So, um, and then also, um, and and so so there's a lot of collaboration between all the different team members. And I know you've said some really, I think, really kind of beautiful things about what happened at the end of that process, of that collaborative process. So it helped with the observation. It helps in terms of the structure of the class. Um, and what were the insights that the, the educators took away? So, um, so let me go to the next level, and then I'll come back oh, to the insights yeah. about the whole group. So then in the middle of the year, for those kids who were still struggling, then we went to essentially tier two. We didn't call it tier two at the time. Now we would call it tier two because we have a word for that. And so the speech pathologist and or the reading specialist and or the special education teacher were responsible for using the intensive phonological awareness program for a small group of children, up to six children who were struggling. And in many schools, um, they collaborated all three days of the week. Some schools it didn't work out, and so they collaborated one day, and then somebody else, you know, one person did it the other two days, whatever worked out in their group. And so what we saw, let me do the Tier 2 first, and then we'll go back to the classroom. What we saw in the Tier 2 was um, some really interesting observations. One was that the reading specialist felt like for years they had worked with these kids with speech and language issues and didn't really understand them. But having the speech pathologist there to have that back and forth while they were collaborating in that instruction, while they were co-teaching, even if it was just one day of the week, provided this enormous insight into why kids, these kids were doing what they were doing. Why are these speech and language kids doing this? What do I do when I'm trying to get them to rhyme words that end with a k? and they can't make a cuh sound. You know, how do we get around this? And the likewise, the speech pathologist felt like, wow, at the end of this, I so much better understand how the written language system works and how kids transition into that written language system. So some of them felt like, you know, we would really love to continue to do this co-teaching, um, but we don't have the time to co-teach, but we've enormously benefited from it. And then other pairs felt like, wow, this is really time consuming to do this co-teaching, but these kids have benefited enormously and we've been able to move these kids off of needing special services back to the classroom. So it was time well spent. In the classroom, what we saw both from doing the um, work in the classroom, working as a team, and then also adding that second layer was that um, my, the teachers felt like kids, the top kids went further than they'd ever gone. And the middle kids went further than they'd ever gone. And the, young, the, the kids that started off the weakest at the beginning of the year, that usually were pegged for retention earlier in the year, were not on the retention list at the end of the year. And so I remember one of my teachers saying, I had no idea that these kids could actually learn this in kindergarten. You know, and I think we often attribute it to they're just not ready. And what she said was, I now see if I teach them in the right way, they are ready. The way I was teaching them before was not the right way. And then just thinking about the classrooms, 
I went back to all of those teachers. I think there was 14 of them the first year. And I said, now that you've seen developmentally appropriate phonological awareness instruction, can you go back to your basal reading series and do the phonological awareness instruction in your basal reading series? And they looked at me like I had lost my mind. And one of them said, um, no, I don't think so because it's completely developmentally inappropriate. Why would we want to do it? So I think that the benefit of doing, um, using good instructional programs that are developmentally programmed that help us learn how to teach is that we actually are better teachers at the end of it. That's great. So, so it seems like everybody involved really benefits, not just the students, but the, you know, the speech pathologists and the, and the teachers and the special ed teachers as well. And who likes teaching when nobody's making progress? Right, 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 right. That's so demotivating for everybody. So if I, have a, if I have a kindergarten class and 10 of the kids aren't learning what I'm teaching, I don't go home feeling very good at the end of the right. day. So you were just talking about this idea of having a tier one and a tier two um, model for, for students with the idea there's good general education for everybody and that there's going to be smaller group interventions for the students who aren't responding. And you were telling me last month this interesting story about how you were doing a teacher training and somebody came up to you afterwards and she said, you know, I'm a tier two teacher um, or I'm, I'm providing tier two intervention, but she didn't really always see the point in what she was doing. Um, and how did you respond to her? So what she was kind of, what she wasn't kind of struggling, she was struggling with was that not all of the kids in her tier two were making progress and going back to the classroom. So she kind of felt like she was wasting their time. And we have to step back and remember philosophically what those tiers are about. So if we, if we just think about learning and the amount of instruction we can provide in the school day, if we do good classroom instruction, um, not everybody's going to get it. And so probably, I don't know, we're, the, the research suggests that 20 to 30 percent of the kids went the way that we teach even when we do classroom instruction it's not going to be enough and that's probably true of math it's true of reading it's true of spelling it's true of a lot of other things they need more intensive instruction so we take though that 20 or 30 percent and we do the tier two instruction and we know that the tier two instruction is more intensive um, it's more focused, it provides more teaching opportunities, more practice opportunities. And we do tier two knowing that most children are gonna benefit from two, tier two, not all. So some groups, all if there's six kids in our group, sometimes six kids are gonna benefit, sometimes six kids aren't gonna benefit. But over the whole group, probably 75 to 90% of those kids are gonna benefit enough from tier two that they're gonna get it the aha moments are going to happen and they're going to go back to the classroom. And then we're going to be left with these 5, 10% of the kids that the tier two doesn't make a difference for them. And so we might think, well, gosh, we completely wasted our time with that tier two. And that's how that teacher was feeling. Right. That's how that teacher was feeling. But we don't know who those kids are going to be. We just simply don't have the data to predict who's going to benefit from the tier two intervention and who's not. So we do the tier two intervention knowing that some children, if we liken that to hopscotch, right? Some kids are gonna finish the hopscotch path and go, up, go back. Some of the kids are really gonna struggle. They're gonna learn a little bit, but they're not gonna learn enough. And then we're gonna move them to a tier three. And the beauty of that model is then that we only have maybe 10% of the kids moving to tier three instead of 20% of the kids in our past models 
moving to intensive intervention. And then of course, at intensive intervention, when we have so many kids in the room, we can't provide the level of intensity that we need. And what does intensive tier three intervention look like for phonological awareness? So that really is gonna look at much more individualized, probably one-on-one or some small group, two-on-one, three-on-one, where we're gonna be able to be much more responsive, pay much more attentive attention, excuse me, to the errors that they make and slow things down when we need to and speed things up when we need to. And so we're not gonna have a preset plan. In a tier two intervention, we have a preset plan. So in the intensive phonological awareness program, there's 36 lessons and you're gonna do those 36 lessons across 36 days. They're gonna get done across 12 weeks, three times a week. And you're going on to the next lesson, whether somebody gets it or not. You're gonna support the kids in, um, learning as the lessons go on you're going to scaffold appropriately for those kids but you're still going on from day to day that's not going to be the same thing at the intensive intervention um we're really going to uh respond to you on a day-by-day basis with what we're doing how we're doing it you know, um, as you're talking about this sort of intensive intervention, I it thinks about this publication that you did that I that I really enjoy, and I tend to geek out a bit when I find a great publication. And my favorite scholarly piece on phonological awareness is an article that you co-authored in 2008, and in it you wrote that learning is best ca- characterized not by moving a child from 20% correct to 50% correct to 100% correct, but by moving a child from successful performance with maximal support to successful performance with little or no support. And I wanted to ask you, why is this? Why does this model work? So a lot of us were trained in behavioral models, right and wrong, that kind of stuff, moving from 20% to 30%. And then um, after being trained in behavioral models, we might have been exposed to Vygotskyan models. And, and really that statement is based on a Vygotskyan perspective. and. Vygotsky suggested to us that learning is about a more skilled person um, taking the hand of someone, if you will, and helping them do something. And then as they get better at doing that skill, whatever it is, letting go of their hand little by little by little. And we can think of that for so many things, like when we learn to ride a bike. You know, our parents held the back of the seat, and then as we got balanced, they let go of it, and as soon as we started to falter, they grabbed it again. Right. So what are the benefits to a student when they have that support from a more skilled adult as they're they're sort of internalizing and mastering these skills? So I think they see the point of learning, Mm -hmm. and they see that they actually can do something, and they can make progress. So if I think about for us as adults, if we were gonna take on a new task and say we wanted to learn to play tennis and we went to the le- our first lesson and we forked over $50 and the um, instructor said to us, well, today you're only gonna hit 10% of the balls <laughs> and then by next week, maybe you'll be hitting 20%. It's I'd not be out very, of there. It, you'd be out of there. It's yeah, not no way. fun, you don't see the point. But if the instructor makes it really easy for you to hit the ball that first day and you hit every one, you're feeling really excited, like, I can do this. This is something I can learn. And then the next day, he makes it a little bit more difficult and a little bit more difficult. You're encouraged. You feel good about it. So for for me, 
I think human beings are excited to learn something when they see that they can do it. It doesn't matter how much help I have. It's just that I can do it. I can now, do it. Now, if you keep giving me the help, I'll get bored, right? If you don't pull back, I'll get bored and I won't want to keep doing it. So it's not going to be fun to ride my bicycle if you're holding on to it the whole time because I'm not going to be able to go fast. But if I can foresee that someday you're going to be able to let go of my bicycle and I'm going to be able to go fast, then I'm motivated to do it. So I want to talk to you about effective scaffolds. What what can we do to, to as you said, your analogy, to hold on to the back of the bike when, when students are first learning phonological awareness skills? Um, and in that article I referenced, you have some fantastic suggestions. You have wonderful suggestions in the um, IPA program as well. Um, but if you're just generally, what are some good scaffolds? So um, I think the best, the, the first thing we have to think about is teaching is about scaffold. It's not about testing. And so many times we test kids, right? If I say to you, Anne-Marie, what rhymes with cat? And I stare at you, I'm not really teaching you. I'm testing you. Right. Um, and, and if so, I say son, and then you say no, and then you ask somebody else, that, that learning opportunity is lost. It's gone, right. So scaffolding, the best scaffolds are thinking about the response that you gave me, what does it tell me about what you know and how do I need to respond so that you can give me a correct answer? So in my mind, a learning opportunity always, always, always should end with success. So if I say to you, let's go back to that. If I say, tell me a word that rhymes with dog and you say cat, I'm going to realize that the level that you're at is just associating meaning. You're not even paying attention to the sounds. So I need to get you to pay attention to sounds, to start to think about sounds. Okay, so what would then your response be then? So I'm not going to go into a long explanation <laughs> that you're thinking about meaning because that's going to take us off in a different tangent. Okay. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw you atten your attention to sounds. So I'm going to say, I told you to think of a, we want to think, I wouldn't say I told you, but we want to think of a word that rhymes with cat. We need to think about how cat sounds. Cat and dog. No, those don't sound alike at all. So let's forget about dog. Cat. Cat and bat. Do cat and bat sound alike? And then I'm going to walk you through. They sound alike. My mouth does the same thing. I'm going to be shaking my head the whole time. And you might be looking at me like I'm crazy because you don't know anything about sounds, but I'm treating you like you do. And so you're going to go along and think of it as I'm depositing information into your bank. So if you don't know anything, scaffolding looks like taking a tight grip on your hand, showing you what the right answer is and showing you why it's the right answer. Okay. If I think that you know something about rhymes based on what I know about you in the past, based upon what you've done and you say dog, I might say, hmm, cat, dog, let's say that, cat, dog, we're gonna say it together. Does that sound the same? No, you're right, they don't sound the same. Let's think of a different word, cat. What's a word that rhymes with cat and mmm? So I might give you a sound cue. Or I might say, I might give you a um, description. I know something that rhymes with cat and it flies around in the air at night and it's yucky and it's black. And you then might come up with bat. bat. Or you might say bird. Right. And if you say bird, then we could, you know, analyze cat and bird and realize that they don't sound the same. And then I might go back to, 
You know, no, really think about it. It lives in a cave. I might give you another cue. And then you might come up with that. Oh, those are all great. Now, what about a student when you say, Anne-Marie, can you tell me something that rhymes with cat? And I say, I don't know. How do you support a student who's not even giving you a response? So the, usually if I think they know something about rhyme mm-hmm. and they're saying, I don't know, mm-hmm. what they're really saying to me is I'm not willing to go out on that limb. Hmm. So I want to extend the olive branch, if mm-hmm. you will, and say, okay, well, let's think, because I know another day you have told me a word that rhymes with cat. So I bet somewhere in that brain you have a word that rhymes with cat. Let's think about it. Cat. What's rhymes with cat? At. What rhymes with cat? At. And then I get you to try, and then I might, you know, I'm going to work with you. And if you know something about rhyme, you're going to put that and that at together. And now that you've gotten it correct, now I've caught you. And now I'm going to say, wow, you did cat and you said fat. I bet you can think of another word that rhymes. And I think we have to remember that it's not about kids not trying because human beings naturally try. Human beings don't naturally shut down. So if I'm saying I don't know, I can't do it, it's because I have some sort of anxiety. I'm afraid of failing. I don't want to... I don't want to try because I want to be right. And so we need, when we're scaffolding, we need to meet kids where they are. And then if we think they can do more with less scaffolding, then provide them another learning opportunity. And my favorite experience when we were doing a phonological awareness group was a little boy I had access, I had asked to segment a word into sounds and he really was trying and he was really struggling. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, can you give me an easier one? And I just loved it because it really told us that scaffolding had worked with him, right? Because he knew there were easier and harder things and he couldn't get that one. So we gave him an easier word. He did the easier word. And then he was willing to try again with the harder word in conjunction with another kid helping him. Oh, great story. That's a great story. So that kind of brings me into my, my next thought is that you've, you've really spent a lot of time sort of refining these ideas about what works for students. Um, how do you take the research and really see it into application in the practice, in, into the classroom? And so I wanted to ask you about how do we close this research to practice gap? Um, and I know that this is something that you're interested in as a researcher, um, and you're really doing your part with things like the IPA program, but what recommendations do you have for practitioners, for somebody like me, an educational therapist or a classroom teacher or a learning specialist? What, what's our responsibility? What can we do? So I think the first thing to do is look for those materials that help you learn how to teach, not just those materials that give you activities. We all can think about activities but we need help learning to teach. Pay attention to the mistakes that kids make and really make your brain think about why they're making the mistakes that they make. Most errors are not random. And if you pay attention to the mistakes of one kid, you'll notice that those mistakes are the same mistakes that come come out of other kids. And so um, if I think about, let's go back to jump, right? Yes. So when you say to a classroom teacher, um, when kids make a mistake and they don't spell jump correctly, what do they spell it as? I bet you 90% of them will write down on the page J-U-P. And so thinking, thinking out loud with them, why are kids making that mistake? Then I can react to it the next time. I can think about how to scaffold. 
So when we're, we're doing that research to practice gap, remember, think about kids' errors, think about what it means about what they know, and think about what you know about development and how you've helped other kids get over those errors. And I, and I love your suggestion to look for materials that teach you how to teach and that don't just provide you with activities. I think that's a really a fine distinction. And I think it's a good segue into my excitement about talking about your intensive phonological awareness program. Um, and I, I know I was personally really thrilled to discover that you'd published it last summer. Um, and I love that the program walks you through every step of instruction with explicit guidance. I love that the strategies are sort of just built in and how to scaffold it for students um, and specifically and explicitly what a teacher can do when a student is struggling. Because I love that that, you know, that empowers me then if I can manage it with this student, that's going to help me with a lot of other students as well. Like you were saying, learning the why behind mistakes. So can you tell us a little bit about the IPA program, how it was developed, and, and what some of the benefits are? So my co-author, Naomi Murphy, was a master's student when I was on faculty at the University of Nevada at Reno, and I had always wanted to have a, a phonological awareness program when I worked in the schools. Um, and I started doing this stuff back when I was a master's student. So um, I wanted something more when I was a practicing clinician and I didn't have time to put it together. So it's really nice when you're a faculty person, you have graduate students that can help you out. And so we put together the program and really at the beginning, it was just a list of developmentally appropriate activities and materials. And Naomi, um, piloted it. She did a small group study with three students. And then the next year we did another small group with six students and two undergraduates helped me um, that next year. And because they didn't really know anything about phonemic awareness, phonological awareness, they really helped me think about how do you get somebody to understand what they're doing when they have limited knowledge of this. And it really helped me start to think, Naomi, Naomi and I start to think about the scaffolding and how do we write that scaffolding down. So it's not just the scaffolding for the students, but the scaffolding for the teachers. Right. So how do you, um, how do you present? How do you teach? All of those kinds of things. How do you respond to errors? And so we really... Um, you hit on it. We really wanted then to develop a program that would support or scaffold teachers as they teach so that teachers, speech pathologists, could scaffold kids so that they could learn. And so this, um, we, we distributed it ourselves for a number of years. And then um, I don't even want to tell you how long this current revision took, but a long, long time. But Brooke stuck with us. And we had done enough run-throughs with it um, in West Virginia. They had implemented it across the state. And so we really now knew what do um, reading specialists need, what do speech pathologists need, what do special educators need. And so really what we've tried to do is publish a standard treatment protocol which will teach educators how to teach phonological awareness and which will in turn then enable them to facilitate children's phonological awareness development. Great. So in all this this pilot testing and, and using it in West Virginia, can you think of any, any kids that you were really surprised by how they responded to the intervention? So I'll actually go back to the second group that we did. And so Naomi had done her thesis with three kids. And the next year we recruited um, five kids. I could see him sitting around, sitting around the table with me, <laughs> five kids sitting around the table with me. And um, 
several of them, actually all of them had gone through first grade. They had all gone through first grade. They were um, either repeating second grade, repeating mm-hmm. first grade, or they had gone on to second grade as non-readers. And um, there was one child in particular. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. I'm going to go back. I'm going to back up. They were all in first grade. So a couple of them were repeating first grade, and some of them had gone through kindergarten and not learned how to read. So one child in particular, I had convinced his um grandmother she cared for him to not have him repeat first grade but to do this phonological awareness program um, because I thought that it would give him the basis for learning to read and that first grade would be a good place for him to use those skills rather than going through kindergarten again so we're going through the program and you know I think it was about the third or fourth week and he's like not catching on and I'm freaking out of course and you just convinced his grandmother to to not retain him so the the pressure's on you yes the pressure is on me and I'm thinking what what did I think what was I doing and you know I think as as um as interventionists we want kids to make success and so we're not really good with sticking with our plan sometimes because Mm. we're sure that our plan was wrong well when you're doing a research project you have to stick with your plan so I was stuck sticking with my plan now I knew I could scaffold for him every day but we had to go you know we had to go to the next lesson the group had to go to the next lesson and what I found with that group of kids was that they needed the 12 weeks to pull it together and so my prediction of where they were going to be at the end of 12 weeks wasn't very accurate after three weeks. So a lot of them were really struggling. They really didn't get rhyme when we were going on to initial sounds, but I was like, come on, we gotta go on to initial sounds. That's what the curriculum says. And so what it taught me was that um, we can use standard treatment protocols with a group of kids. Kids take different amounts of time to get it together. Everybody learned. And I needed to learn how to hold their hand through that 12 weeks to make sure that they learned. But going back over and over and over to those same lessons until they perfected that lesson wasn't really the answer. It was the answer was being comfortable with the amount that they had learned and using that then to help them continue to learn across the 12 weeks. And truth be told, when we got to the end of the 12 weeks with those kids, um, four of them really had made enormous progress and were where we wanted them to be and one of them had was continuing to struggle but she was catching on and so she was the kid that then needed to go into a tier three intervention and the other kids could go on could go back to the classroom and do the decoding activities and did your and did your little guy with his grandmother did he make it successfully through first grade so he did and what was really cool was his grandmother um the school knew he was going to an intervention program at the university. And let me say they were, they didn't know me, but they were none too happy with me. They were not, they wanted that kid in kindergarten, not in first grade. So when the grandmother said, well, there's, you know, this person at the university that wants to do this, I think that they probably made a face at her, but she came back and told me when she went to his, um, to his uh, conference in December, they she walked into the room and they immediately said we don't know what you're doing over at the university but keep doing it because he is the best he's one of the best if not the best readers in the classroom and this was a kid with language impairments and really really a lot of difficulties so it really told me um to believe in the instruction that i had good reason to believe would work great and go from there not everybody's going to be at the top of the heap 
but at least some of the kids are. And then another mom in that group said, um, you know, really, she had been very, very nervous about her child learning to read because everything else had been delayed. And so she said, you know, like this, doing this phonemic awareness enabled her to learn to decode. And she likes reading. She walks around the house with books, never thought she would. And interestingly, her mom said that her social capital had really improved because now she was doing the same kids as other kids. She wasn't the kid who was always delayed. The other kids saw her in a different light. So never really thought about that. Um, but you do get social capital when you do what other kids do. Oh, I'm so glad you shared those stories, Melanie. Um, I always love hearing about students who are struggling and we might think that they're not able to catch up or they're not gonna, they're ever gonna close that gap, but with the right instruction and the right support, they can, they can really take off. So thank you for sharing that with us. So thank if you. folks wanna find you, uh, Melanie, what's the best way to learn more about what you're doing? So, um, you know what? I did make a web page, but right now I can't even remember the name of it. I well, should have done that. So I'll send that to you. Great. We'll have that um, in the show notes. So, so we'll have your website have up. In the, um, in the notes. So yeah, I created a WordPress um, web page. It's my first foray into the web page. And then you also can, um, uh, my personal email is melanie.sheely at me.com, me.com. And that's a good way to contact me. And then we also have a um, web page at Vanderbilt. And we were just informed last week that we have to change our web page. Um, universities move from one platform to another. So the easiest way to find our web page is going to be to search my name, Melanie Sheely and type language lab and Vanderbilt University and you will find it that way. Great, and we'll link to you as well. And where can people pick up the intensive phonological awareness program? So um, Brooks publishes the program, so you can find it at their website, which is www.brookspublishing.com. And of course you can always find things on Amazon. So it's on Amazon and um, Brooks has given us a discount code, so there's a 10% discount if you use the code AF, capital letter A, capital letter F. Okay, great. And we'll also have that um, linked into the show notes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure hearing about your research and the work that you're doing. And I want to thank you as an educator for um, sticking with the program and making sure it got published. And I think you've really given us um, a great tool to use with our students to help help them succeed. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks. That bridging that research to practice gap was our whole intention. And so it's nice to know that um, we may have hit the mark. All right. That sounds great. great. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for listening. I hope you're inspired by these ideas. There's a lot of great resources that Dr. Sheely mentions. You can find them at baytreeblog.com slash podcast and search Melanie. The reason we produce this show is to help educators and parents better teach kids with learning differences. We'd really appreciate your help spreading the word. If you could help us get the word out by leaving a review in iTunes, that would be amazing. You can go to www.baytreeblog.com slash iTunes, and it'll take you to the page where you can review. If you'd like to pick up a copy of Dr. Sheely's Intensive Phonological Awareness Program, just visit baytreeblog.com forward slash IPA, and it'll take you to Amazon. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Hey, hey.